I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We will be looking at verses 8 through 11 this evening, the letter to the church in Smyrna. I'm going to read those verses for us tonight. But before I do, I remind you, brothers and sisters, as always, that what we are about to hear read is the word of the living God. So let us attend to it as such. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before you acknowledging who you are and who we are, that you are our creator and we are your creatures remade in the image of Jesus by your grace. Speak to us now from your word, we pray. Give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us this evening. We need you to do that. We are unfit, incapable of doing that on our own. And we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. One of the great tragedies in our modern handling of the book of Revelation is how we make it so mysterious, have a tendency to make it about those things which it actually is not all about. And as a result, we miss the point that this revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ was given to encourage the churches to whom it was written and to us that they and we might suffer well and remain faithful unto death. And yet, praise be to God, even though we often miss that nowadays, throughout church history, we have examples of God using his word and the book of Revelation in particular to that end. A great example of this is Polycarp. And it's not coincidental that I choose to focus on Polycarp because he was actually the bishop during this time of the church of Smyrna. He was consecrated by the man who he was a disciple of, the Apostle John, who actually wrote this letter, this revelation. He received it from Jesus. And he likely, at some point in his life, read this letter that was written to this church, probably for the first time when he was in his 20s or so. And later on in his life, when he was 86, later on in his life, the last day of his life, when he was 86 years old, he was arrested and taken before a Roman governor and demanded, as was often demanded of the Christians back then, that he offer tribute to Caesar. Make a sacrifice to Caesar. Say, Caesar is Lord. And he refused to do it. He said, no. Here was his response, as a matter of fact, which is recorded for us in history. He said, 86 years have I served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How then? Can I blaspheme my king and my savior? He so agitated 
the governor, that the governor said, you know what, I was going to feed you to the animals, but instead we're going to burn you alive. And so as he was burning alive at the stake, and right before he was run through by the Roman guard who was keeping watch over him, he incredibly not only didn't recant, but he was thanking the Lord before the thousands of Romans that had gathered there in the amphitheater in Smyrna. They heard him praying and thanking the Lord out loud for the privilege it was to be martyred as Christ was and with all the martyrs who had gone before. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear stories like that, I feel about that big. And then after I get over myself, I start asking the question, how was he able to do that? How was he able to remain faithful unto death? Because I don't know about you, but I want to be faithful unto death as we're commanded to be here in this letter by none other than Christ himself. And that question, by the way, brothers and sisters, is what the entire book of Revelation is answering. Because what is this a revelation of? It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. What do we need in order to endure and be faithful unto death? A clear vision and understanding of who our glorious and loving Savior is. And that's exactly what the church in Smyrna received, and that's what we receive this evening together. And we're going to see two truths. I'm not going to give you the specific verses because we're going to be jumping all over the place. But two truths that we're going to see about Jesus. First, we're going to see that he knows our suffering. He knew the suffering of the believers in Smyrna, and he knows our suffering as well. And we need to know that and rest in that. Second of all, we need to know that he comforts us in our suffering. He specifically reminds these Christians in Smyrna of glorious truths about himself that will comfort them in the midst of their suffering. And this has been preserved for us and in the providence of God is now going to be preached for our encouragement this evening as well. So may the Lord use his word to that end in our midst. Let Jesus knows our suffering. Look at verse 9 with me. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So we see right out the gate, Jesus is saying, I know what you're suffering. I know the persecution, the losses, the trials and temptations that you're experiencing. And so then he lists them for us. He lists us first two sufferings that they've already experienced. And then he gives them a heads up of two sufferings that they're going to experience in the future. And the first thing he says that they know they've already experienced is poverty. He says, I know your poverty. Now, this is fascinating because Smyrna was a very wealthy city. It was known as the first of Asia. It was beautiful. It was right on the coast. It's of modern-day Turkey. It's the city of Izmir. It's still there today. And people love to live there, wealthy people. Think of like a retirement coastal community. And there was a port there that was well-protected, lots of trade happening. And so very wealthy people lived there. And yet Jesus says, I know that you're poor. I know you're in abject poverty. Now, the text doesn't tell us specifically why they're poor, but we know enough from history to know why they're poor. Because as I already alluded to in the introduction, what was demanded of these Christians was that they offer tribute to Caesar and say Caesar is Lord. And they could not because Jesus was their Lord. Like Polycarp, they would say, how can I blaspheme against my Lord who's lovingly saved me and redeemed me? And so as a result, 
when you offered tribute to Caesar, you were given this certificate. And that certificate allowed you to be able to work. If you didn't have that certificate, you weren't working and you couldn't provide for yourself. You couldn't provide for your wife. You couldn't provide for your kids. And so you can imagine the temptation. Husbands, fathers, well, I, what if I just go through the motions and say the words and do what needs to be done? But in my heart, I'll still be worshiping Jesus and not Caesar. They refused. They would not bow the knee. As tempted as they may have been so they could provide for their families. And so Jesus says, I know that you're in absolute abject poverty. Second of all, he says, I know that you're being slandered. Look at verse 9 with me again. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So who's slandering them? The Jews are. And the reason that the Jews are slandering them is because the Jews hated the Christians. Because what is the Christian's main claim? That this God-man, that God came in the flesh and was crucified on a tree. And what did the Jews believe? Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. That's not God. You're committing blasphemy for saying that that Jesus is Lord. And so they're hating the Christians because they think they're blasphemers. And so what's happening is the Christians experience some protection under the Jews initially because Judaism was a recognized religion by the Roman Empire. But Christianity was not. Well, initially the Romans saw Christianity as just a sect of Judaism, but eventually the Jews kept saying, no, no, they're not part of us. They believe something completely different. And so slander was being thrown at the Christians like, well, they're cannibals. They get together and in their gatherings they say they eat the flesh and blood of their leader, Jesus. And they're incestuous, right? Because husbands and wives are calling each other's brothers and sisters in Christ. And so they're being slandered and they're being persecuted. And these Jews, who should be followers of Christ, instead are called a synagogue of Satan. Why? Because they're the mouthpiece of Satan and they're doing what their father, the devil, who is the father of lies, who is the great accuser, who is a liar himself, they're doing what their father does. And Jesus says, I know that this is what you're experiencing. I told you this is what you would experience as my disciples. They lied about me, and they'll lie about you as well. But he doesn't stop there. He says, your suffering's about to get worse. I know you're poor. I know you're slandered. But then he says, there's two more sufferings that are in your future. Look at verse 10 with me. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Again, he's saying something that Jesus in his earthly ministry promised his disciples in Luke chapter 21 and verse 12, that they would be brought to the synagogues and thrown in prison. Jesus is saying, this is about to happen to you. And if you notice... Jesus says, the devil's about to do this to you. Now, how are we to understand that? Do we understand that, that the devil is going to show up and actually grab them and physically throw them into jail? No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that, and this is important, brothers and sisters, for us to realize. Anytime wicked men persecute and seek to destroy the church, they are doing the work of Satan himself. They are the vehicle through which it's as if Satan himself is doing it through them. Through their wicked hearts, their wicked intentions, their slavery to him, 
and the flesh and the world. And yet, here's the thing. Jesus says, why is this happening? Why is this happening to them? Look at verse 10 with me again. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Why? Not for your destruction. Not so that you'll fall away. But why? That you may be tested. And what's going to come about as a result of that test? They're going to see that their faith is genuine. It's true saving faith. God doesn't need to test them so he knows. God tests us so that we can see that our faith is genuine. It's preserved us through this gift of faith, through this suffering and this persecution, and we've endured until the very end. So this is a comfort. I haven't brought this about so that you'll be destroyed, but for your faith to be tested so that you can see that it's genuine. And we know, because Peter tells us, that knowing that your faith is genuine, that's more precious than gold. Lastly, Jesus says, not only is prison in your future, but likely death as well. Look at the tail end of verse 10. Jesus says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Obviously, they're to remain faithful until their dying day. But Jesus means more than just that. Some of them are going to die. And Jesus says, remain faithful unto death, knowing that many of them would. But notice how it starts out, brothers and sisters. Jesus is not far off and distant. Remember what we're told in the vision that John receives, that Jesus is the Son of Man, is amongst the lampstands. Jesus is with his church in suffering. And so I don't know what everybody is suffering here tonight, but Jesus knows. Jesus cares. And Jesus says, I will uphold you through that. That should be great comfort to us. None of this comes as a surprise to him. And so he knows intimately what we are struggling with, what we're having to endure. And you may be sitting there going, I'm so overloaded with suffering. I don't know what's coming down the pike. I'm dreading it. Rest in knowing Jesus knows. He knows what's coming next. And he's with you and he cares. So the first thing that we need to understand in order to be faithful unto death is that Jesus knows what we're suffering and what we're about to suffer. Second of all, we need to know that Jesus comforts us in our suffering. And the way Jesus does that is he hearkens back to the vision that John already received. And we're going to see this with each one of the letters. We already saw it with Ephesus. And then Jesus applies specifically what's true of him to whatever that church needs. And this is a church that only receives encouragement because they're suffering. They're being persecuted and they're being faithful. And so Jesus says, I'm going to encourage you And he does it in several ways. First of all, we see that Jesus comforts them by saying, I'm sovereign over your tribulation. Look at verse 8 with me. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. What I want to focus on there is that phrase, the words of the first and the last. That's a direct reference to the way that the Lord, Yahweh, refers to himself again and again in the book of Isaiah. I'm the beginning, I'm the end. I am God. And so Jesus is saying, I'm God. I'm sovereign as Yahweh was sovereign. And what often accompanies this title in the book of Isaiah is the Lord telling his people, don't be afraid. Don't fear. 
I'm in control of everything that's happened to you, everything that is happening to you, everything that will happen to you. And now Jesus is here saying, nothing's going to touch you except that which I've decreed lovingly for your good and for my glory. Not a hair of your head falls. Nothing and no one touches you unless I say they can, right? When Satan comes to tempt Job, he's got to go to the Lord first. It's only after the Lord allows that to happen that he's able to do that. We see this sovereignty of Jesus even more clearly in verse 10. Again, I've already read that several times, but I'll just point out that Jesus says, this is going to happen. You'll be imprisoned for 10 days. Jesus knows, because he's decreed, how long that is going to take. I think this is also a reference, by the way, back to Daniel chapter 1. You remember Daniel and his friends are in exile in Babylon. They refuse to eat the king's food, and they're tested for 10 days, right? Just eating the vegetables. And at the end, they come out of the other end of it just fine, looking better than all of the other youths who ate all the scraps from the king's table. And what Jesus is saying is, you're in exile in Babylon as well. Be faithful, because I will be faithful to you. And he's also saying, this is a short period of time. The sufferings we experience here are light and momentary in comparison to the weight of glory that awaits us. And Jesus has ordained those times of suffering. And so the first comfort is, I'm sovereign. I'm in control of this. Trust me. Rest in me. Second of all, Jesus comforts them by saying that he's conquered death. Look at verse 8 with me again. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, now this is the part I want to focus on, who died and came to life. Now again, Jesus has already referred to himself this way back in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18. And what this is highlighting for us is that Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh. He assumed a human body and soul, and he died on the cross for us. And he didn't just stay dead after atoning for our sins. He then rose from the grave. He conquered death. So he's conquered the first death, physical death. Because what does he say to us? I will give you a glorified, resurrected body as surely as I have one. I've won that for you. That's why he can say to them in verse 10, I can give you the crown of life because I've conquered the first death. I've conquered physical death. But second of all, he's conquered the second death. Look at verse 11 with me. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? Revelation makes this abundantly clear. The second death is suffering under the wrath of God for all eternity for our sin. Now, who is Jesus to say that if we remain faithful and conquer, persevere in the faith, that we won't taste of the second death? Well, he's the one who tasted of the second death for us so that we never will. So that we can say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, and 56, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He tasted that sting of death on the cross. He drank that cup of God's wrath to the dregs so that there is none left for us. We will never taste it. Yes, we will die physically. We will taste of the first death unless Jesus comes back. But he's conquered that. But we'll never taste of the second death. When we die, we will instead go and be with him and enjoy His presence along with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and all God's people for all eternity because Jesus won that for us. 
Thirdly, Jesus says that even though you're poor from the world's standpoint, you're rich. He comforts them saying, though you can't even put food on the table for yourself or your wife or your kids or those in need around you, you're rich in me. Look at verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. What's Jesus talking about here? Well, they're rich in several senses, and we could spend a lot of time here tonight talking about all the ways that we're rich in Christ. But let me just highlight a few. First of all, they are rich because God has been rich towards them in Christ. He's lavished grace upon grace upon them in His Son. This is the point that Paul gets at in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. The Son, again, humbled Himself, assumed a human body and soul, and did everything necessary for our salvation, to the point of being obedient to death on the cross. He was humbled, and then he was exalted. And all of those riches that he earned have now been lavished upon us by God in him. So that we are adopted, we're forgiven, we're declared righteous, we're being sanctified, we have fellowship with each other, we look forward to a resurrected body, eternal life. All of these riches are ours. There's another sense in which they're rich, though. They're rich now because of God's grace towards them. They're rich in good works towards God. Isn't that the point of the parable of the rich fool that Jesus shares in Luke 12? He says, remember that this rich man stores up all his wealth, and he's like, I'm going to build bigger barns and bigger barns. And then right before he's going to settle down and enjoy it, he dies. And Jesus says the point of the parable is this is how it ends for everyone who isn't rich towards God in good works. And they are because of God's gracious work in them. And then lastly, just briefly touch on this, we're rich in Jesus because everything's ours. You understand that? You want to kill covetousness? All of this belongs to you when Jesus comes back. We inherit everything and rule and reign with him. Don't try to make your life now about riches because everything is yours in Christ. He's comforting them saying, though you're poor in the eyes of the world, because of your faithfulness to me, you're actually rich. Next, he comforts them by saying, and this is really important, Jesus says, I will give you what I command you to do. Where do I get that? Look at verse 10 with me again. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. You understand that we can't be faithful unto death in our own strength, right? You understand Polycarp. And all the disciples who followed Jesus, who were martyred, they didn't do that in their own strength. That's an overwhelming, impossible command if we're to do that in our own strength. But here's the glorious thing about our Savior. That which he commands, he gives. He commands us to be faithful unto death. And he says, I know you can't do that. And so I will strengthen you and keep you so that you will be faithful unto death. And in the ways that you fail to be faithful unto death, I know you'll repent. You'll abhor the fact that you weren't faithful and turn away from it and look to me in faith. Look to Jesus in faith, the one who was perfectly faithful in our place so that we can press on and continue and repent and look to Jesus in faith again and again and again. 
I love how James Durham in his commentary on the book of Revelation summarizes this. He says, The saints' consolations flow not from their freedom of being preserved from crosses. It's not that we're not going to experience suffering. Because he goes on to say that is not their comfort here. But they flow from Christ's being engaged to sustain them under the same. Under that suffering. Under those crosses. From his word. As we hear it and receive it by faith. Jesus sustains us through these promises and this glorious vision of who he is. And he ends it saying, which ought to keep them from anxiety and fainting in the greatest tribulations. And so brothers and sisters, I know you have ears this evening. Hear what Jesus is saying to you. He knows your suffering. He knows what you're experiencing right now. He knows what's coming down the road. And he says, I'm sovereign over that. It's not by accident. It's not because ultimately of something you did. It's because I brought it into your life for your good and for my glory. And what's the worst that can happen? You can die. And I've conquered that. And you'll never taste the second death. I tasted that in your place. You might, get, you might be poor. That might be in our future, brothers and sisters. You understand that. We won't bow the knee to Caesar, and so we don't get the certificate to be able to work. Jesus says, you're rich in me. Don't be unfaithful so that you can have the things of this world. I'll take care of you. And then lastly, what does he say? He says, this may seem overwhelming, but I will keep you. No one. No one can take you out of my hand. I hold you to the end. And so, brothers and sisters, whatever comes, look to Jesus, knowing that he knows what you're experiencing and knowing that he comforts you in the midst of that. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's sobering to reflect on what this church in Smyrna experienced. We acknowledge that our sufferings have not been as great, and yet by your grace we want to be able to face the same as they did, as Polycarp did. And so we know that we ultimately can't do that by looking to their example, but by looking to Jesus, our substitute, our sovereign, our Lord. We pray that all the days of our lives we would bow our knee to you and you alone, and we confess that that will only happen if you keep us. Do that in us, we pray, to the praise of your glorious grace. We ask all these things. Amen.